All right, so we are back again with the next installment of our series. What happened in India? And I believe this is chapter seven. So if you've been following along, wonderful. I'm happy for you. It's great to have you on this story. (laughs) I'm glad at least someone's listening. And if you haven't been following along, well, you can always go back and listen to those previous episodes. Otherwise, let me just set the scene a little bit. I'm in India, and I'm staying at the Osho International Meditation Resort. And I've just started work as meditation, and I've also just started... Ooh, just started seeing a girl. So, that is very good times. Very good times. And I still did have a cloud hanging over me of seriousness. It was still something I had to work with. And it really was different to be living in the resort. It was like going into the world completely. Even though some days when I was living outside... All I would be doing is walking down the street, falling asleep, and then coming back the next day. Even so, to actually be in the resort full-time was great submersion, great just complete commitment to what was going on. And there was sort of this funny joke of (laughs) when I was working in the reception offers, every time I put something in, well, not every time, but every now and then I would put something in and it would be the wrong number. And the person that I was working with would say, you always put the wrong number. When it's 26, you put 25. And when it's 27, you put 28. Why? And you even turn up on your wrong day. It is always just one, 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 wrong way, wrong side. Why do you always do this? So, of course, for her, it was a very sort of frustrating thing because she was trying to get the work done. But I could see the humorous side. And I think some other people could also see the humorous side as well. So, another thing is that when you're living in, there's a certain routine you have to follow. or There's certain rules that you have to follow. Like, you've got to make your bed. You've got to keep your room clean. You've got to turn up to certain things. And they do have their own in-house laundry, which was great. And I remember this one week when I had my laundry and I was waiting to get it back and I kept going there and they kept saying, oh, it's not ready. Oh, it's not ready. And it usually takes two or three days. And I said, okay, well, the fourth day. And they said, oh, no, it's not ready. So I thought, okay, well, I'll come back the next day. Then it will definitely be done. And then they said, no, it's not ready. And eventually what happened was I actually had to buy a new robe because I was only wearing one robe and I was really hanging out for that fresh laundry. So I bought a new robe and then I went back again and they said, no, it's not ready. So I thought, well, I could probably wear this robe again tomorrow. And then then by this time, a week had gone past. And I said to them after a week, I was like, well, can you investigate what's gone wrong? Really tell me. And the lady sort of went back and checked it out, and then she came forward with the little piece of paper, which was the laundry paper. And she said, your laundry hasn't been done. And I said, well, why? What was the problem? 
And she said, well, you've written 13 instead of 12 for pieces of laundry. (laughs) And I was like, oh, man, I've done it again. I've made the mistake. And so, of course, I had to refill out the form, then send it. And then it was three days until the laundry was ready. (laughs) So that was the sort of lesson of get your numbers right. Accuracy is important. And you could say like, well, why didn't she tell you, right? Like, why didn't she say that when you first went there? Well, it could have been a different lady and she might not have actually known. And there's also this thing of, there's this sort of air around the resort and maybe it's in India as well. It's sort of like there's something out to get you to keep you on your guard, to sort of keep you on your edge. Now, in the resort, I knew there was certain things that were actually designed that way for awareness techniques, right? So, for example, the entrance into the main hall, the main meditation hall, main meditation hall is across water. It's on this narrow sort of path. And if you step off, you fall right into the water. And one of the designers had said, well, why don't we put a hand railing so people don't fall? And Osho had actually said, no, that's the point. You need to be aware of your surrounds when you're walking in. And so that's just one example of these little things that are sort of built into the design. And the routine of like, get your laundry right is one of them. And then the other side of it is there's this thing of like, you're a, you're a white guy, right? It's sort of like a, a reverse sort of payback for your privilege. When you're a white guy in India, your privilege is very obvious. Your sort of status as a Westerner is very obvious. And in some cases, there is a sort of resentment which sort of gets back at you in a sort of sneaky little way, right? Any chance you can. So, you know, there's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B going on there with the laundry. So it was like, get your paperwork right, get your paperwork in order. And (laughs) it was very funny to sort of be in that office working as a receptionist and to have little mistakes come up, which sometimes turned out to be big mistakes. And I remember the person I was working with actually made a mistake once, which was that she hadn't put some data into the computer. And so we actually had to go back and redo it. And it wasn't really a mistake in a sense because... It made sense why she didn't do it. And I found myself sort of re-entering this data because the powers that be had made us. And I knew that really it didn't make that much of a difference. It was sort of like we were just doing this so some old white guy that was at the top of the food chain could sit back and go, oh, well, that's an interesting statistic, right? And it was this situation where I was sort of like, on this computer, entering numbers very carefully because I knew I was prone to making mistakes. And it was a tedious job for 
an effect that wasn't really significant at all, right? It was sort of like this mindless work, this meaningless work. And it was like, okay, how how did I find myself in this situation? I've gone all the way around the other side of the world on this massive, amazing holiday, which is meant to be full of these wonderful highs. And I found myself in this tedious job, which is just like the job I used to have in many ways. But this time it was different because it was like, no, you're doing work as meditation. So this is your lesson. How do you integrate meditation into this? Right? This whole thing of significance, meaning, and working for someone else, all of that is stuff you've got to contend with. And how do you contend with that? By bringing your meditation in, right? The the traditional idea, here's the traditional idea of meditation. You go away and you do 10 days meditation nonstop. You don't do any work at all. And then when that's up, you're done, you go back to you go back to work. When you go back to work, it's basically up to you to figure out how to apply all that you learnt from your meditation retreat at work. And here, what I was doing in this office was actually the opposite, right? It's a much more nuanced way of working with that because it's like, okay, do your meditation, daily meditation, then come to work. And actually, the work is practice for living meditatively. And you're working with it. You're doing the work specifically for that point, ultimately. And the other thing about this work was I was actually paying them to do the work, right? Now, I did get lodging, so there's perks to the job, but it's sort of like, you know, I'm I'm paying you so that I can work for you. And that sort of mis- mismatch, that, that sort of reversal of, okay, Instead of doing work for money, it's the other way around. (laughs) It's work so you can pay money, (laughs) right? That sort of energetically had this thing always hanging over you. So, very different lessons to be learnt in work as meditation. And I worked in that reception office for quite a while and... There were some ups and downs and a lot of backs and forth and a lot of fun times as well. Very playful times, right? Sometimes it would be normal just to have a peacock just walk into the office and look around. Like, I, I mean, literally a peacock, right? Because they're prone, to, they're known to be one of the features of the resort. And it would just walk straight in, look around and walk straight out. And you know, ah, it's just another day at the office. Like... That's just something that happens. And then you meet all sorts of people as well. Like some people would turn up loose as anything. I remember this one lady turned up and she was like, maybe I should do this. Oh, can I pay with this card? No, I can't do that. I will go now and get money. And of course, I knew it was a trek to get money. And then she didn't come back. And then she came back the next day and said, no, I want to change my program. And it sort of went on and on like this, right? No, I'm going to change my program. I'm not going to do this. Oh, I should do this. No, book me in for this. No, let me pay like this. And it was like, you know, what are you going to do? Just say what you're going to do and we'll book you in. And in the end, she just left, right? Right after booking it. She like booked it and paid a deposit and then left. (laughs) So 
Yeah. I I remember walking in one day and saying we should have called this the loose <laughs> the loose cannon office. And I actually found out later that that particular person was like this multi-million business entrepreneur who you know, it was just on this whole crazy life trip. And I actually met a lot of very wealthy people as well. So, very, very interesting range of characters. And once I'd worked in the office for a while, that office, I actually got moved to the MV Plaza, which was very different. And I was working as cashier. So, my job was to count the money. Again, right, counting this time I had learned I have to be very, very careful with getting the numbers right. And that was very different because, for one, the office was secluded. It was sort of in its own bubble. So I sort of found myself going into my own work and actually writing a lot. And I was writing this story and writing these things that had come up for me in Dubai and these things that had come up for me in Germany when I was staying in Berlin and I found that I'd actually gone into a little bit of the space by writing about it and this this seriousness had returned this sort of facial expression had sort of come seeped back over me and my my girlfriend even noticed she said you know something's going on with you when you write those stories you really do change, and it's not necessarily a good thing. So, I thought, well, what am I going to do about this? How am I going to work with this? I need to do something about my seriousness. And I did end up getting a session on this, and it didn't actually start out as something intentional. I sort of just booked the session with a particular person who I knew was good and then walked into it sort of in an open way. And as it turns out, it's it's really not the best way to do that. Like if you book a, a session with someone, depending on what sort of session it is, right? There's this whole range of sessions. You might have cranio, Feldenkrais, chakra sounds, sort of healing, energy body, physical body, massage, sort of in a child, in a man, in a woman, you know, there's this, there's this huge range of, uh, huge range of sessions that you can get. And as it turned out, it's actually better to know what it is you need to fix, what it is you need to work on. So, you have to have a certain amount of self-knowledge for the sessions to be effective. And I walked into this session and the facilitator said, you know, you've got to have something to work on. And I thought, well, what about this seriousness? Can we work with that? And <laughs> I did work with the seriousness. And man, just by being able to go into it, I was able to shift so much. And it's a little bit mysterious because certain things happen which theoretically you should be able to do by yourself in a certain way. Like, if I can use like a metaphor or an analogy, it would be like talking to a mirror 
should have the same effect as talking to a psychologist or a therapist of some sort. Theoretically, but in so many ways, in, in somehow, it's not like that. And, of course, it doesn't just go for talking therapies. It also goes for emotional therapies. It also goes for energetic therapies. And it also goes for existential therapies. So, I found that my seriousness was another doorway to something beyond just normal consciousness. And it put me into a state, like that one session put me into a state which was really just quite shattering. And, of course, you can't put words to it, right? And the good thing was that once I had gone there, once I had gone through it, once I had explored it on a much deeper level with the aid of a trained facilitator... I was able to actually shift things and see what I had to do next. And that was really the beginning of a new sort of chapter in my journey, which was to do with playfulness. And it was really a seed at this stage. It was really only the start of something. And I knew that I had to somehow sort of turn this seriousness into playfulness because seriousness had been such an incredible part of my life and it's been such a driving force of my life and in some ways it was good in some ways I needed that but I could see that it wasn't serving me I could see that I had to move on and (laughs) to sort of share another little story about being the cashier in the (laughs) being the cashier in the MV Plaza. I remember sitting at the cafe once and this guy sat down next to me and he goes, ah, isn't it a pain in this country to get cash? And he was right. It is a pain to get cash because sometimes the ATMs are out. Sometimes there's a limit to how much you can get out. Well, there is a limit to how you can get out. And when you're paying big money for a resort, it's actually quite a hassle to get all the cash and he sits down next to me and he says I went to the ATM and I typed in the figure and then I had to get it out at a smaller amount and then I need to do it 10 times and then the ATM run out and then right as I was bending over to get the money a worm came down and landed on the back of my neck and the whole place stank and I've been walking around with this big ball of cash because the cashier is now not at his desk. (laughs) And I turned to him and I said, I'm the cashier, let's go and do your money. (laughs) So it was very funny that he had sort of had this spiel about how difficult everything was and it was funny because I could see, right, the same thing with my laundry, right? I had the same problem with my laundry. Ah, it was just one number. Why couldn't they have told me? And now I have this stink all over me, you know, like this big huff. And it's like, well, well, that's the lesson, isn't it? Like, you get into these huffs. You get into these tangles about things that are just day-to-day life things. And they're not that difficult to fix. It is possible to do them calmly, simply, 
and with clarity. So <laughs> there were there were lessons that is not just like lessons that come to you, but also things that you see in other people. And that that guy with the worm getting the cash out, I could really relate to. So yeah. And then another thing that I'll mention is that I started having deeper awakenings with my sight perception. Once things had started to shift and I'd really been able to go deep into for for some time now sight awareness, right? Like since I had had that moment in Latsu Garden looking at the leaf, I had been back to to meditate again and do it again and repeat that sort of process of looking at a leaf like we talked about in an earlier chapter. And I remember one specific moment where I'd had my morning meditation and I'd gone to breakfast and I'd sat down at a table eating my breakfast by myself and it was very quiet. And I'd been sitting there and sort of having this state come over me almost unknowingly about my sight, like to do with this thing through the sight, like this alignment with sight. And I was sitting there and as I sat there, I sort of had my eyes move up slowly and I realized that this tree that had been in front of me, probably about 10 feet away from me, which I'd been noticing or sort of looking at, right, had this branch that came down forwards and actually was hanging over the table where I was having breakfast. And I was sort of looking at the tree and then the the protruding leaf, like, hit my consciousness. It sort of pierced my consciousness. And then I sort of looked up and then and then my eyes moved upwards and saw the whole tree which sort of branched out like this. And I just like burst into tears and was just like just in this just shocking awe of this tree right before me. And I was like, my God, how how can a tree have such magnificence? How can a tree just be so glorious? Like just like it was it was just just this avalanche through my eyes into my body, and I could feel it all through my body. And I feel that that was sort of a culminating event or a peak experience of all the practice I had been doing and all the things that had been going on. And <laughs> I told one of my Indian friends about this experience and she said a bit later, you know, you know, Andrew, I won't, I won't do the voice. <laughs> you know, Andrew, I thought you were going a little bit cuckoo when you were telling me that story, but I realized that there's this yogi became enlightened by staring at a single point, a single dot on the wall. So there was this, and she, when she said that, well, it made sense, right? It's a, it's a concentration exercise. So I could imagine a yogi like 
staring at a dot on a wall for 20 years or something and he becomes enlightened. So what I'm doing is sort of like a smaller version of that in a way and maybe not the same effect. Maybe it's a different thing, but there would be some overlap between those two things. So that was a pretty pretty amazing sort of experience to have and it's pretty powerful lesson to learn and to see those things going back and forth for me and of course I had to keep practicing them I had to keep going into these things again and again to sort of solidify those peak experiences and bring them back to earth and sort of around this time there was also a lot happening between me and my girlfriend because I'd reached the stage where it was very obvious that there's no separation between your relationships and your spiritual path, right? When I'd first turned up at the resort, it had been like, okay, just stay away. I don't want to talk to anyone. I'm just here to meditate. I'm a serious meditator. And particularly with girls, right? And sort of as these months have unfolded and because of the experiences that I've had, I'm basically, I've basically been turned into something that's open to everything and open in a way that sees everything as an opportunity for transformation, sees everything as an opportunity to gain an awareness. So probably one of the core things that I was doing with my girlfriend was actually eye-gazing. So some of the time we would... Some of the time we would just sit and stare into each other's eyes for like four hours. And of course, talking was the same, right? Speaking with awareness was part of that. And there were also times when there'd be shifts in the fabric of reality as I was looking into her eyes and actually get those sort of LSD-like states and even going into like past lives and it was so funny to sort of have those experiences and to sort of make the connections like the the one of the one of staring into the mirror and having eye contact with yourself and sort of just gazing at your own eyes at your own face and then having it change into the the demons and the different animals and the different like things and seeing it go all warped it's sort of like it's not that weird right it's just you know you do the practice you do the technique and then you get the result and it's not like you're the first person to ever have that happen it's not like it hasn't happened before right it's not like it's that much of a surprise at all and I remember long, long back ago when I was a kid, I must have been maybe in primary school, I remember one time looking into the mirror and and seeing something like that and being really afraid and actually being scared so much that I thought, well, maybe there's a demon inside me or there's something wrong with me, like I've been possessed. And I was sort of like in this dark time around then anyway, I think so. Yeah, to to sort of have that deep, far memory 
from my childhood and then to be in a place where it's like, okay, we're working with things here and we're mature about it and it's not that far out because, you know, things like that happen. Freaky things happen in a place like this. It was really good. It was just really good to sort of be somewhere where like these abnormal things were not quite so abnormal. So that was really important and really gave me a sense of community as well. And (laughs) we also did do some exploring, me and my girlfriend. And I remember one night we we went up to the roof of the bar show just to do some dancing and to sort of look around. And it was sort of like one of those areas which was off limits, but we sort of went there anyway, right? Like to climb the ladder onto the roof and sort of to be looking out and seeing people from the dark in the... I should have mentioned it was nighttime. (laughs) But it was just like those sort of areas, those little sort of hidden nooks and crannies that we went to explore in just added to the little mystery of the place. It added to the adventure. And it did also have its ups and downs, this relationship. Like, like if you remember I said this place is life on steroids, then the relationship was also like that, right? There were ups and there were downs and there were challenges. And I remember... I remember sitting by the pool once and this woman came up and sat next to me and she asked me out. She said, can we go for dinner tonight? And I said, I'd love to do that, but I have a girlfriend. I'm sorry. And she said, I don't care. I want to be your girlfriend. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) that's very forward. (laughs) And we actually ended up becoming quite good friends and we realized that there was nothing there and I mean it is that's a different story for another day maybe but on more than one occasion something like that happened right and it was sort of like it was sort of like it's sort of like the old curse isn't it you know this curse which is when you don't have a girlfriend and you're desperate for one Nobody wants to know you, right? I had been trying to get with this girl and talk to this girl and suss out this girl and nothing was working for me. And then when you do get a girlfriend, they all want you for some reason. It's like, well, where were you when I was single? (laughs) So, yeah. And who knows? Maybe there wasn't really anything to it. Maybe I'm just sort of aggrandizing myself. But... There was a little bit of tension because also, I mean, my girlfriend had her boyfriend turn up. It's like, okay, now it's happening the other way, right? So it's like a double triangle, double love triangle going on. And there was, I mean, there's a few chapters here which would be a little bit like a soap opera. (laughs) I mean, it's a little bit of a soap opera. I don't know how much I really want to go into it. I don't want to name names and I don't want to say too much anyway, but it's like this thing of who's related to who. 
and who wants who. That becomes very sort of intensified when you're in this close environment and you're doing meditation and everyone's on holidays, right? Just just this thing of holidays, everyone's traveling. That in and of its in and of itself is a sort of factor to openness, right? When you're working, it's like I'm going to my regular places, I have to do my work, and I haven't really got time to socialize because I've got to wake up and do what I have to do the next day. And yeah, to be in a foreign country with a whole bunch of foreigners just lends itself to more openness. So yeah. It's sort of like I experienced both of being this sort of desperate loser and also like this sort of highly prized man that women wanted. And I experienced them both quite intensely in a short space of time together. And in fact, that sort of structure is one that would repeat itself later on. It's this thing of, normally in life, you're in a situation and you're learning how to deal with it and then the situation passes and then some other situation will come along and then the same thing will happen. But here in this resort, with this sort of awareness, consciousness in the air or something in the air, spirit in the air, we could say, it was more like a situation will come along which is actually more difficult to deal with and it's more intense, it's more in your face, it's more immediate. So you have to do seriously big problem solving fast with much bigger consequences. And... Not only that, but the situation is going to pass and then there's going to be another situation that comes along which is going to be just as intense and sometimes of a completely opposite nature. And because of this, you're forced to deal with it, right? You're forced to actually change and actually have a response that is effective or suffer the consequences. And because they're close together, you see the connections. You see the differences. And that's really how fast learning happens. Really deep, fast, submersive learning. Right? I remember I remember being in the bar show and sort of relaxing and seeing my girlfriend walking towards me from one side. And (laughs) this girl that I knew liked me and I was sort of thinking, wow, she's actually quite an amazing woman walking from the other, right? (laughs) And then I saw them sort of meet together with me, right? That sort of situation is like, what am I going to (laughs) do? And yeah, perhaps I've said too much already, but... That sort of drama would be enough to fill a whole... I mean, I could tell stories about that drama that would fill a whole TV series. So, Netflix, 
send me your deal. <laughs> if you want a writer, let me know, because I've got stories that'll make your hair curl. And yeah, I don't know if I really made it out of that situation unscathed. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was successful with many of the lessons that I learned <laughs> overseas with those sort of relationships. So, yeah. What else can I say for this chapter? I mean, that's probably... That's probably enough to sort of sink into. That's probably enough to have our plot move forward. And, I mean, the thing that... The thing that really is starting to boil for me, or the thing that I know I have to move on to, is playfulness. And I had to learn how to do that while working. I had to learn how to do that with meeting new people. I had to learn how to do that with this relationship that I was in. I had to learn how to do that with the music that I was continuing to do, as a matter of fact. Maybe in the next chapter I'll say a little bit more about that. But I could see more and more clearly that this seriousness had to transform. And I was also learning that, well, when you go deep, it's possible to go even more deep. So, yeah... Incredible experiences, incredible lessons were learnt from work as meditation and living in the resort. <laughs> so that about wraps it up for this chapter, guys. Please leave me a comment. Share your favourite episode with a friend. Thank you very much. And we'll be back next week. Check out the next episode in the series, What Happened in India. And that's all I have to say for now.